I'm going to sit this one out <laughs> right here. Um, this series is about the, the struggle that I think we all face in one form or another, things that, that we're stuck in. And, and, and we've tried very passionately perhaps or maybe not enough to break free of these struggles and, and they vary in each of our lives very greatly. Some might be debilitating, some are just annoying, but we still want to overcome it. And so breaking free from these difficult and harmful patterns, um, they, because we want to do that because they affect us or prevent us from experiencing the fullness of Christ. That is what Christ has in mind for life to be, life in you. And we've already looked at uh, several of these, and this complete list is uh, in your bulletin. It's going to take us right into the end of October. And we've already looked at the, a childlike sense of wonder about God, and I shared my story as a boy and, and how that wonder has always been with me in my heart to, to know the maker of this wonderful world that I'm blessed to be a part of. And each of us has to kind of go back to that childlike yearning, the childlike faith to reconnect perhaps with God when the struggles have overwhelmed us. And also going back to our first steps with Jesus. They were probably um, a little bit stumbling and, and not perfect. And yet, as we saw in Scripture from that message, there's so many ways to come to the Lord in Scripture. There wasn't just one set pattern. And it's all really about the heart. And then last week, identifying the roots of struggle. Uh, it came down to three things. And, and, and most of our struggles will will come down in one way or another to uh, doubt, to fear, and to hate. And, and how each of those elements impact us, whether it's something that we chose or something that, through a, a choice of another, impacted our lives. And so today we're going to look at faith, mystery, and openness to open questions. You can find just about anything by Googling it. I wanted a picture of Twin Pines, but not just Twin Pines. I wanted specifically a picture of one of the cabins at Twin Pines. I Googled it, and one of the first eight photos was this. <laughs> exactly what I was looking for. It's, it's amazing and a little scary, too. <laughs> that cabin... Among many places at Twin Pines is, uh, is special to me uh, for the reason I'm, gonna, I'm gonna, about to tell you. Um, I don't know if you were at summer camp as a kid at Twin Pines or if you had a summer camping experience, whether it was a church camp or perhaps scout camp. It's as, as a boy, as, as, as a girl when you grew up, when, if, if you were able to do that, didn't it feel great? that mom and dad trusted you enough to go away without them. Wow. And maybe that was frightening for you, and homesickness can happen to people, and it often does in the camp setting. But mom and dad said, I can go away and without them, and none of my brother and sisters were there either at that particular time I went. I was eight years old, and there was a couple friends from church. That was great, but... 
They gave me my own suitcase filled with my stuff and a sleeping bag and a pillow and money. <laughs> they gave me money to spend so I could buy sodas and candy. Wow, this is heaven. <laughs> All my money was gone by Tuesday. I think that happened both of the first two years. Then I started to figure out, wait a minute, if I want to have a soda on, on Thursday or Friday, I really have to you know, plan this and budget a little bit better than I understood as an eight-year-old. But camp was fun, and I loved it. And I went every year for a whole week in the summertime. And I, by the time I got to age 12, um, now camp had changed, and so did I, as, as we all do as, as, as children. Uh, Somewhere around 12 years old, give or take a year or two, we go from that, uh, that what's called concrete sequential thinking, where the world is kind of this black and white place, and if you do this, you get this. If you, you know, do things right, it'll go well. If you do things bad, it won't, and there's, there's consequences. And, and, and we need that structure in life as children. And at some point, the, the idea of abstract thinking, although we don't call it that when we're little, but that's what... Um, a good way of looking at it now, we, we think kind of differently. We think about the whole world isn't set up for black and white, right and wrong. There, there's, there's gray areas somehow, and, and abstract thoughts start to come in. And I had those thoughts, and as a boy that went to Sunday school very faithfully every week, I began to have a lot of questions about God. And some of those questions were just going back to that sense of wonder. Wow, wonder how big God is. I wonder where God lives. I know it's heaven, but what's that really like? And, and I started to think theologically. I wouldn't call it that either when I was 12, but I started to think, wait a minute. Okay, I know that, that Jesus died on the cross for me, and that's wonderful. And, and when I accept that love from God and ask him into my heart, I'm forgiven and I promised heaven. And I, and I got that and I understood that. But then I started to wonder about other people. I said, wait a minute. There's people in this world bigger than my little valley in Hosensack and that camp I went to once a week, you know, excuse me, for, for a week in the summertime. And the world got a little bit bigger, and questions started to come. And my church, there would be missionaries that would come and, and show pictures of their work in Africa or in Japan or in Central America or wherever they were ministering to people, and they would talk about their stories. And I started to wonder about those people. And at some point, somebody said, we have to keep going because there's people who never heard about Jesus out there. And that question really stuck with wow, what happens to them? Like, I've been blessed with the access and the understanding and the teaching about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I embraced that at a very young age, and I'm happy for it, but what about the rest of the people on the planet? A few years back, I did a sermon. If you don't remember this, that's okay. I don't remember a lot of what I said. Okay, but... There was a sermon I called uh, 95,000 Soulmates. And, and I did some um, demographic equations, which I don't pretend to be good at. So I came up with the number 95,000 based upon what I deduced to be the number of people who were born the same day as I was. I don't just mean the same date on the calendar. I mean the very year, the 27th of October in 1959, I... I, I calculated that there was approximately 95,000 people, including me, born that day. 
and all of you have a day in, you know, whenever you were born. It's similarly. So, so for all of those people born on my birthday, that year, that rotation of the earth, how many of them had access to the gospel the way I did? And when you start thinking of that a little bit further, because uh, in, in many nations, third world countries, the, um, the death rate for children when they're born is very high. And so of, of those 95,000 people that were born the same day as me, thousands didn't live to see the next day. Thousands more never saw their first birthday just because of that's the way infant mortality was and children died very easily because of sickness and disease. Others, others died further on in their life because of other forms of illness or injury. Some died in war. Some died at the hands of others or at their own. But even to this day, as I'm 62 now, um, it's probably still safe to say that the majority of those 95,000 are still walking this planet. And I was blessed with a clear presentation of the gospel, but were all of them? Clearly not. And what about the ones that died day one or year one? Not only did they not hear the gospel, they couldn't understand it if they did as, as babies. What about them, God? If you're fair and loving, isn't this for everybody? So that question kind of burned in me. It burned in a sense of, of it was still in a sense of wonder, not like, well, God, I can't accept or believe in you until you settle this for me. <laughs> it was just like this question on the back burner I had. Fast forward to that cabin in the summer of 72, maybe 73, but I was a junior high camper, so now that abstract thinking is in full bloom. And in the evening, uh, if you've been to Twin Pines, and I'm, I'm sure other camps do something similar, but at Twin Pines especially, the last thing you would do as a cabin group at the end of the day was gather with your, your counselor in your cabin and have cabin devotions. And that, I really enjoyed that because what the directors, when I was little, were pastors and they would teach us every day. And some of them were okay, some of them were boring, you know, and some of that was just me as a boy, just being restless. But, but cabin devotions, this was cool. Here's this this counselor who's just a little bit older than us, kind of like a cool older brother or cousin or uncle or somebody, but, you know, he, he was closer to my age, and, and you kind of look up to him, and he's going to tell us something about Jesus. He's going to open up the Bible. And so I would listen to every word. And the particular counselor that year is a guy named Kent, who I still remember. And um, so he would teach whatever he taught that particular night, but here's what I remember very specifically. We got done, and he would ask, have a time for questions, and the boys would have different questions about this story or that story. It might be a question of, well, how exactly did Jesus walk on the water, and Peter too, or, or, or maybe it was something like, did Noah really have all those animals in the ark, you know, and okay, and those are interesting questions. How did Jonah survive in that whale? And we might have asked stuff like that, and, and I had something deeper, and I asked my question, that one in the back burner. I said, I know that, that Christ died for me, and I believe that, and, and I've accepted that, but what about someone else in the world who never heard of that? For the first time in my life, I was 
maybe bold enough to ask that question, but also I didn't get a pat answer. I didn't get the, well, the Lord knows and that's all you need to know. Well, God is in control. Well, um, that's okay. Sometimes we don't understand things and we just have to accept it the way it is. And those can be genuinely spoken, don't get me wrong, but, but I was looking to dig deeper, even as a 12-year-old. And this counselor, when I asked that question, his eyes lit up. And he walked over to the, there's a fireplace in that cabin, and um, on the fireplace mantle, he had a, a, a short row of books, and he grabbed one of them, pulled them off, page through. I don't remember what the book was, or what the book was about. In part, I do, because he read this section of a book, and I'm very much paraphrasing it, but the gist of it was that there was this little boy who was standing before an idol in, in some other nation somewhere. And he was looking at that idol and talking to it and saying, are you real? I'm just talking to you and you're, you're just this wooden thing and painted and, and kind of ugly, honestly, but I don't want to be disrespectful of you, but are you really hearing me? I've been taught all of my life to pray to you and we have, we have various... Um, rituals or sacrifices and festivals all in your honor, but are you really there? You know what? No, you're not enough. And that little boy looked to the sky at night and saw the stars and just sort of cried out, God, if you're there, I'm here. That stuck with me. That was my open question. And, and that question has remained, now hear this, it's remained unanswered fully. And yet God's given me enough to say, it's okay, Paul. And it, to kind of contradict myself, he is in control of all of it. And the ways to God are bigger and wider and different than all of our theologies add up to conclude. And I don't want to ponder too much just that question today. I, I, I want to say this, that the place I landed in after that counselor told me that, and the place I've been in ever since, is a place that says, I have a big question, I have hints of an answer, and, and, and that question is still open, and I'm okay with that. And I'm okay with that. It doesn't stop my faith. It doesn't make me um, disbelieve God or, or become angry at God or distant from God because, God, you never gave me an answer about that that is definitive, that I can go script, you know, chapter and verse. And there are some who have attempted to find a chapter and verse about that particular question, and it, it, it doesn't, again, I don't want to go into the details of that too much, but, you know, that's my question. Who can be saved? It's, it's about process. It's about access. It's about opportunity. And I believe that God, that, that, that the way to Jesus Christ is open to anyone, anywhere, who calls out to God, even if they don't know the name Jesus. Now, now some theologians have trouble with that. You've got to have the name Jesus in there somewhere, but 
You know, I, I think it's a little bigger than that, but, but I, can't, I can't go to the Scriptures and, and make a conclusive statement, here's the way it is because of Scripture. But I can say, here's some hints. And I'll show you one of those in a couple of minutes. But maybe that's not your question. Maybe your question has always been, why is there so much violence in the Old Testament? And there is. It is a very violent book. And, and it seems almost like a contradiction in a sense. You have these, these wars and retribution and, and all these just happen endlessly, it seems, in the Old Testament. And then you have the New Testament with Jesus who is all about love and compassion and peace and forgiveness. So how do we hold those two things together, God? I mean, war, any kind, violence, uh, where's the compassion, God? A quick example, have you heard the, the, the verse that says, the Lord, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks in the heart? That's a good verse. That's a, that's a helpful verse. It, I think we, we get that. It's that it's not just the surface things that we do and say and, and our appearances that matter, but God looks deeper. What's behind it? Well, the context for that verse is the prophet Samuel coming down really hard on King Saul because Saul didn't follow God's order. God's order in that text was when you fight this battle with this neighboring nation, kill everybody. I mean everybody. Men, women, children, even animals. And that's why Samuel knew he didn't obey it because he had some animals that he kept from the battle. That's a really hard passage. That could be a really stumbling block for people. A loving God telling them to kill everybody, men, women, and children, including the animals. Now, there are answers for that in the sense of different ways of looking at that text and different reasons. But, you know, on the surface, that's a very, and that's not the only one. I just picked one, okay? Again, violent. Where's your compassion, God? What, what's going on here? I don't understand that. How about eternity itself? It's very mysterious. We can't, we can't understand it. We can't describe it. Heaven, we're told, is wonderful, and I certainly believe that, and, and descriptions are, are beautiful. Uh, another little boy aspect, though. They talked about heaven and streets of gold, and, and I'm thinking the whole time, wait a minute, where's the baseball field? <laughs> if this is heaven, you know, Kevin Costner must have had the same thought when he made the, the movie Field of Dreams, right? <laughs> if there's a heaven, it's baseball, you know? But, but, but if we stick strictly to a very literal reading of the scriptures, it's streets of gold, and, and, and we're singing praise to God forever and ever. I was in a church just a few years ago where the, the worship leader, and worship leaders feel this way because they're musicians, they're singers, they're excited about music, and they say, all right, everybody sing. We're going to do it forever and ever, so you better get used to it. And as a boy, I'm thinking, oh, please, no. <laughs> I, I'd be at church. We're trying to get through the hymns. Some of them were okay. Some of them I like singing. Most of them, is it over yet? Oh, they're going to sing all the verses this morning? Oh, boy. <laughs> we're going to do that forever? Oh, okay. Heaven's bigger than that. Existence and eternity is, is, is beyond our imagination. And our imagination can even take us into not just mystery and wonder, but but even fear, like, what is that? I can't 
get my mind around it. Even give me be terrifying forever and ever. What does that mean? Maybe that's your question. The whole mystery of it all. Mystery is good. Mystery is, is something that can get us up in the morning and keep seeking. And yet, we're never going to fully understand eternity. And yet, it says in Psalm 139 that God has placed eternity in all of our hearts. How about this one? Much more theological, but it kind of comes down to practical things. How can I have a free will if God is sovereign? This is an age-old debate that, that minds much greater than mine have debated and written about endlessly over the, the centuries of the church. God is sovereign, therefore, everyone who believes in him, he knows about ahead of time. In fact, if you're a Calvinist, he just picked them, and the rest of you are out of luck. That's pretty much what Calvinism is, all right? And um, free will, which I come out on that side, is, no, wait, God is sovereign, and yet he allowed us to have choice in the matter, and it's us that, that come to him. Again, that choosing however it is, in a church or in a dark night where you never heard about Jesus, but call out to the stars and say, maker of the stars, save me, love me, you know? Well, how does that balance together? Because there's scriptures that really sound like it's all in God's hands and it's all up to him. There's other scriptures that seem like, well, you better, it, it's up to you. Choose the way of love. Choose the way that God's given to you. Choice are our own autonomy, individualism, um, authority. How does that all fit together? Um, and probably the biggest one for most people is suffering. How, how do I equate suffering with a loving God? Uh, you know, I prayed for healing, and there's this unanswered prayer. Is, is God fair? You, you hear about someone else that, that had a miracle performed, and you're happy for them, and yet you think back perhaps, well, when I prayed, it didn't work that way. It went a different direction. So, so can there be some anger with, with God because of those things and, and the pain involved in all, of, all forms of suffering? You know, we've, we've suffered a lot this year with the, the greatest pain of death in, in this congregation. And, and to have those questions, you know, God's not going to be mad at you because you're mad at him. He can take it, okay? Because you're questioning him, because you're asking that three-letter question, why? Why now? Why like this? Whatever it might be. And all of us have those when pain strikes us. But does that question, does that unanswered question pull you back away from God in a sense? Or until I have an answer, until this makes rational sense to me, I'm going to cut God off. I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to go that path at all. So many questions. We could probably fill that with another couple of dozen at least of, of questions that, that we have for God. And this, this series is, is about dealing with the stuff that has us stuck, with the things we want to change. And if we have these open questions with God, then that can be a barrier to experiencing the answers that you can have or could have or the changes that, that you want to see happen because you're somehow less trustful of God if you don't have some solid answer from him about X, Y, and Z. John 1.14 says this, The word became flesh 
and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1 is, is, is a beautiful statement, a powerful statement that John wrote. And, and, and it begins just the way the book of Genesis began. Of course, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was life. And, and God was with the Word, and, and the Word is God. In other words, the Word, capital W, Word, is Christ himself. Um, so in a technical kind of way, when you open up your Bible, that book itself isn't the Word of God. Now, don't mishear me about that. Pastor said the Bible's not the Word of God, okay? In the fullness of that meaning, Word of God, the Word itself is Christ. What this book does is point to Him, reveals Him, okay? So the Word became flesh. So God, the maker of all, all the universe, all of life, all of creation, has come to us in the form of Jesus, the Christ, the Word. Now, how did God choose to, pre to, to present himself to us? If it's the God of the universe coming down to this one tiny little planet with these pesky little annoying people on it, and for some reason God loves them, you know, well, how does God get our attention? How does God create a means to communicate with us and then to have connection, even relationship with? It's God. He could have done anything. He could have made us cower in fear. Sometimes we're afraid anyway, but we're more afraid of what we don't know. But if God were to write in the clouds a, and imprint a message up there, like, like if God would tattoo the sky and be there every day, love me or else. <laughs> that would change everything, wouldn't it? Or if God would say, all right, here's what I want. I want lots of sacrifice. You know, animals, uh, grain, everything. And, and that was tried, and that didn't really work either. But it was, you know, lots of sacrifice. And then, so, so and, and you could come up with lots of examples of how God could have come to us. But here's what he, how he did. Jesus came full of Two things, grace and truth. He leads with grace, and he also holds to truth. Now, it's important to realize he came with both. All right? So, truth. Law, order, structure, answers. Um, it's where we all need to begin but it's also where we all need to fail. And it's based upon obedience. That's truth. That concrete, sequential mind of a child learns at a very young age about truth. They encounter the truth that their parents said, um, don't touch that. And their curiosity kicks in and some smallest bit of disobedience says, 
I wonder if I can believe them. That looks kind of neat, that <gasps> and pain comes, and, and hopefully just a, a minor little burn or something. But, and we can think of lots of examples of that, but the point is we, we encounter truth at a very young age, and, and so we need truth because we need structure and order, and we need answers where they're available and where they are you know, uh, obvious as we learn. And, and a, a, a parent who truly loves their child will, will provide law, will provide order and structure in their lives and answers, um, except, except the two-year-old who, who says why 15,000 times a day, okay? Which is a great question because we all want to know why. And that childhood answer kind of never leaves us, never left me, you know, but I don't ask it in the sense of, well, if I don't get an answer, I'm not believing. It was more, wow, this is wonderful. How'd you do that, God? Oh, why did that happen? God, why did that happen? So why is a good question. Grace is forgiveness, openness, inclusion. That's an important word for me in, in relation to what I said a moment ago about the people that have never heard about the gospel. How are they included? Uh, in the opportunity, at least, to receive Christ, to, to, to know that they, they too can live on after this life because of Christ. Um, mystery. Um, grace is unconditional, unearned, undeserved, unexplainable, but still at a certain level understandable. And it's all based on love. Now, again, we need both of those, so Christ came with both. He came to us full of grace and truth, but I think the word grace comes first very intentionally. He leads with grace, but he doesn't throw out truth. So what that means is, it's sort of like the law and grace reality that we see in Scripture. If you fall down too much or you come down too much on the side of truth, then you become very rigid. Then you become, here's what you got to do. If you want God to love you, you have to obey, that's it. And there is, we need to understand that truth matters. And when we run up against truth, it hurts when we defy it. Hurts us and hurts others. But we need grace to overcome that. If it's grace alone, then it's almost like, well, all that brokenness, all that pain, all those mistakes, all those sins, ah, don't worry about it. They didn't matter. I love you. Come on in. So we need the balance of both, but you have to start somewhere, and it starts with grace. He loved us first, it tells us, as an expression of the gospel. He loved us while we were still sinners. He, he, he loves us. He leads with love. He, and and um, love is, is, is the engine of grace. Grace came first. Christ came with both. Now, here is the truth about truth. Truth always leads to pain. Always. And there's a, there's a common phrase we probably use on a regular basis. The truth hurts. And usually, I don't know about you, but when, I, when I'm saying that, I might be saying it to somebody else or about them. Yeah, okay, they learn their lesson. The truth hurts, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. But then when it's my turn <laughs> to realize that the pain of truth, yeah. And truth needs to hurt. 
And we need to experience pain because that is what will awaken us to our need of something bigger than our pain. And that's where grace comes in, motivated by love, moved by love. The engine of grace, as I said a moment ago, is love. Grace can only exist inside of brokenness, failure, inadequacy, and pain. And here is one of the weaknesses of the gospel presentation that I spoke about a few weeks ago. And again, I'm not shooting it down. I think it's very helpful. But to just say, all you have to do to live forever is ask God to forgive your sins and come in and that's it. So you could do that. You could say that prayer very robotically. You could say that, wow, I I don't like death and I certainly would like to live on somehow. Okay, how do I do that? All right, I say this prayer and I'm good, right? Great. And you can do that. You can say that without really feeling the pain of your own brokenness and admitting to God that you need him. And that's got to be part of it. It's not just that I want to be forgiven so I can avoid consequence. It's that I need to be forgiven because this has just broken me down and I want something bigger than my pain. I need need a God, the God, the Christ. I need to believe and I do believe that, that he is bigger than my pain and I can't fully understand that in this moment, but I understand it enough to take the next step and that's all he ever asks of you. The word of God, again, if you think of word in in the truest and deepest sense, is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. So what does that look like? Well, that comes from the Psalms, uh, 119, I think. And um, a lamp in Old Testament times was uh, like a metal tray with maybe some, some kind of fat that would burn. And, and you'd burn that, and it, would, it wouldn't last real long, but it would, it would be like your flashlight. It was the only thing they had. And, and keep in mind, there was no nightlights then. There was no streetlights. There, no <laughs> there was no light except for a fire that you could carry with you. And that was a little fire you would carry with you. So can you imagine in, in absolute pitch black, you know, in, unless the moon is out, of course, that always helps. But so the moon's not there. It's pitch black. And all you have is this, this little light that looks like it might go out any second. How far do you think you can see? Like, I couldn't see from me to Dan, I'm sure of that. I doubt I could see from me to Harry. Maybe I'd see his eyes. But if I'm walking with that, with that lamp, I can see my next step. I can see my next step. That's faith. Your word, the truth about God in Christ, is like, a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. I can see with my, to t- I can see enough to see my next step. Oh, I can't go that way. There's a big hole. There's a cliff there, or something. I have to go around. I can see enough that I can safely take one step, and maybe I can get a little glimpse down the path to see. Okay, there is a path there, but I still need to step carefully along the way. That's grace. Grace can only come in when we recognize our need of it. 
in our brokenness, in our sinfulness, in our inadequacy, even in our anger about God. You can be angry with God and just cry out to him at the same time, can't you? You ever been angry with a friend or a loved one and, and, and you're kind of expressing it in anger and yet you still love them and the tears come? We can pray that way too, you know? He can take it. He's not going to zap you with lightning when you're just honest with him about the deep, deep pain. And so many of you, not just this year, know what deep pain is. The kind of pain no one should have to go through. But here you are. There you were. And here you still are learning to live with it months and even years later. So in conclusion, do you have an open, unanswered question for God, and has the lack of a clear answer kept you from trusting God in your struggle? Just be honest with yourself and with God about that. And and, and whatever form, it might be something that I suggested there, or it might be something completely different, but but there's this, this this big cloud between you and God, this cloud of doubt or cloud of anger, Or maybe you just decided, you're not even there. And yet something in your heart, that eternity he placed in you, still ever so quietly emerges and calls out. And today's reading, the reason I chose that text today, it, it talked about mystery a couple of times, but this is the verse that God gave me to help with my wondering about the people in the world who never heard about Jesus. Now, Paul is writing to the Colossian church in the first century, so Christianity itself is only a few decades old, and Paul, more than anyone, but among other people, were responsible for spreading the gospel by mouth, telling people about Jesus into the Roman world. But they hadn't reached the whole world, At least not that way. But here's Paul writing to Colossians, and he says this. This is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. This is way before the gospel could possibly have reached Africa, or at least, you know, southern end of Africa, let alone the western hemisphere, or Eastern Asia, or islands around the world where people existed, and yet Paul is saying, in the first century already, it's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. So Paul, I think, is acknowledging that the best way for people to understand what the gospel is, is to tell them, so they they understand verbally, and and eventually it was written down, and we can share that, and we should. But in the absence of that, God's hands aren't tied. God can still reach people, because this gospel has been proclaimed to the whole world in one way or another, from the start. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for your word, and you are the word. And may whatever 
aspect of, of what you spoke this morning through me, hopefully, that, that you would help us to see the one thing that matters, the one thing that we need to trust you with or to turn to you or the, the open question that we have and to come into a place where we don't have all the answers and that's okay because of grace. In your name, amen.